Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Shashank Joshi, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Guillermo Lasso, a self-made banker, was elected Ecuador's president in April with high hopes for reform and investment. Now he's mired in problems, from violent crime to hostile lawmakers. Can he find a way out? And learning a foreign language isn't just about the vocabulary and the grammar. There are also a host of unspoken rules that are rarely taught, where the emphasis goes in words, which sounds are allowed, or the rhythm of a sentence. We look at the secret of accents. First up, though. There are protests raging in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, where a military coup took place yesterday. Early on Monday morning, the Prime Minister, Abdullah Hamdok, was arrested by the army. In a televised statement, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, Sudan's military leader, dissolved the government and declared a state of emergency. But people didn't take this lying down. By mid-morning, thousands of pro-democracy protesters had already taken to the streets. All of this might seem a little familiar. Two years ago, demonstrators from all over Sudan marched over the bridges crossing the Nile to topple Omar al-Bashir. He was a ruthless Islamist despot who had ruled Sudan for three decades. Out of that revolution emerged a power-sharing pact. It was struck in August 2019 between some unlikely bedfellows the protest leaders and the generals who had staged a coup against Mr Bashir when it became clear his time was up. Now, the generals have struck again, and Sudan's democratic transition has been upended by the fourth coup in its history. It's yet more evidence of a disturbing trend. After two decades of relative stability, coups in Africa are on the rise again. We've just seen a dramatic turn of events in Sudan, the prime minister and the civilian leaders in this transitional government that's been trying to steer Sudan towards democracy have been arrested and detained in unknown locations. Jonathan Rosenthal is our Africa editor. Uh, so it's a very worrying development for a country that had seemed to be coming out from, from dictatorship and military rule and towards democracy. Jonathan, you spoke to us about this in the summer, but, but remind us... What's being toppled here? What did Sudan's power-sharing government actually look like? What we saw in 2019 was this massive revolution 
a real pro-democracy movement led by civilians, young people, out on the streets. But at the same time, the army stepped in, they mounted a coup, and they refused to immediately hand over to civilians. So this power-sharing deal was cobbled together that sort of tried to put the three main players in place. And at the top is Abdel Fattah Buran, who is who was a general, he's you know, the army's man, and he is, I guess, the de facto president. Under him is a civilian, a, a respected a former economist, Abdallah Hamdok, and he's been sort of trying to lead the democratization process. And then the third player is Mohammed Dajalo, and he really came out of the conflict in Darfur. So you've had this very uneasy power-sharing alliance for the, for the past two years. And now one of that trio has turned on the others. For the moment, it seems actually two of them has. Burhan, the general, has seized power. He seems to have the support of Dajalo uh, and, and, and the RSF forces. So it seems as if the two are working together against the civilians for the moment. So the military has once again turned on civilians. Sudan has had no shortage of coups in the past. W- was this one a surprise? No, it really wasn't. So General Zajalo warned us in an interview in July about the possibility of violence and a coup. There have been other indicators coming in the past few weeks. There, there, there was a very strange protest recently where people seem to have been bussed in, protesting and calling for a military coup. A lot of Sudanese civil society and activists and pro-democracy figures said this was this was staged. It was an attempt to try to sort of whitewash the coming coup in advance. Uh, OK, so this isn't a surprise, perhaps, but why now? The why now is important. So Mr. Berhan was due to hand over power to the civilian-led government. So this power-sharing deal that was cobbled together put the military in charge for the first the first stretch and for the last 18 months running up to elections the civilians were meant to be in charge and and we were really coming up to this crunch point at which point the military was due to hand over what impact is this going to have in the region do you think is this going to ripple out does it have implications for neighboring countries oh it absolutely does the horn of africa is already a powder keg so right next door to sudan you've got ethiopia where 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 there is a you know, very bloody civil war that's now almost a year old. There have been a number of coups in Africa, a real uptick. You know, this is the second coup in Sudan in two years. We've seen two coups in Mali in roughly the same period of time. We've seen a coup in Guinea. We've seen you know, a sort of a coup by another name in Chad. I think that the, the signaling effect of a coup in Sudan is, is, is quite worrying. Jonathan, coups had been declining for a while, hadn't they? And is there a particular reason why we're seeing this resurgence? Do we understand the drivers of it? What we've seen in the past few years, I think, are two factors. And the one concerns about jihadism and instability across the Sahel. You've seen civilian governments struggling to deal with these security threats, and you've seen the military stepping in. And in both cases, you've got the African Union and Western allies who are, I think, sort of prioritizing short-term stability over their democratic values. So they, they are willing to back the generals if, if the generals are fighting jihadists. The second issue that comes up is the resurgence of great power rivalry. After the end of the Cold War, the West more or less had its way. What you've got now uh, is, is, is the West competing with Russia and China. So in a number of cases where we've seen 
you know, either dodgy elections or coups, and Western diplomats have been relatively quiet, uh, what they all say off the record is that, you know, if, if they didn't engage with the government and recognise it, Russia and China would. And finally, turning back to Sudan's generals, how do you see the next few weeks going? What should we expect? So, so I think it's a very volatile situation. In the capital Khartoum, you've seen people coming out on the streets, a number were killed yesterday. But on top of that, you've also got a, a sort of real powder keg of, of kind of intercommunal violence across the country. Uh, and the final issue, the, 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 I suppose perhaps the most dangerous of all, is that uh, Mr. Bohan and uh, General Dajalo are now working together on this coup, as they did in 2019 on the previous coup. But there is every reason to believe that they do not trust one another, that they both want to be in charge themselves, and they're both the heads of you know, armed factions that, that do not necessarily coexist very well. So there is a real worry that they may turn their guns on one another. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Como parte del Plan Nacional de Seguridad, anunciamos las siguientes medidas. In Ecuador last week, President Guillermo Lasso declared a nationwide state of emergency over a wave of violent crime. Empezando de inmediato nuestras fuerzas armadas y policiales. Last month, 119 people died in a prison riot among rival drug cartels. And on Friday, one of Ecuador's best-known athletes, the 32-year-old sprinter Alex Quinones, was shot and killed. Mr. Lasso's struggle to maintain order isn't the only challenge the president's faced since he took office six months ago. Ecuador's legislature is investigating his personal finances after he appeared in the Pandora Papers leak of data on secret offshore bank accounts. And opposition lawmakers are threatening to stymie his signature economic reforms. But Mr. Lasso is undaunted. He's remained popular in Ecuador on a promise to practice a new kind of politics. Guillermo Lasso was the surprise winner of a general election in Ecuador in April. Surprising because he's a conservative, self-made banker, not calculated to appeal to the man or woman in the Ecuadorian street. Michael Reed writes The Economist's Bayo column on Latin America. He recently interviewed Mr. Lasso. But he won partly because he shifted to the centre and mainly because his opponent was a proxy candidate for Rafael Correa, a leftist populist who ruled Ecuador for 10 years until 2017 and is now unpopular. Mr. Lasso promised to eschew populism and to generate growth through private investment, a rather different approach. And why did that message land so well with voters, do you think? Well, I asked Mr. Lasso about that earlier this month when I 
sat down with him in a rather grand hall in what is otherwise a rather unassuming presidential palace in Quito, the capital. And he told me that voters recognized, he thought, that Ecuador needed a change from what he called this totalitarian populist model. And he was referring to the decade in power of Rafael Correa. Mr. Correa presided over an oil boom and he built roads and public buildings on the strength of it. But he also greatly expanded the size and cost of the government. And then the oil price fell and that left the country nearly bankrupt. He also enacted a new constitution which gave him control of supposedly independent institutions such as the prosecutors and the courts. And in many ways, the country is still suffering a hangover from Mr. Correa. And on your visit to Ecuador to speak with President Michael, did, did you see the consequences of that hangover? Well, yes. I mean, Ecuador, like many countries in Latin America, suffers inequalities and poverty. But perhaps what sets it apart is that as a result of a long history of populism and monetary instability, it adopted the American dollar a couple of decades ago when its own currency melted down, essentially, because of hyperinflation and people abandoned it. Now, that has given it a certain amount of stability. And so Mr. Lasso's approach is to get the public finances in order and try and spur growth. That sounds simple in principle. How exactly does he intend to go about doing it? The centrepiece of his approach is a reform bill, which includes a labour reform, which would make new contracts more flexible to encourage hiring. Opponents say it would make jobs more precarious. Also in that bill, there is a tax increase which falls mainly on the rich. Mr Lasso also wants what he calls an investment shock by sweeping away barriers to investment in oil, mining, electricity and telecoms and infrastructure in particular, as he told me. En el gobierno actual estamos impulsando la inversión privada, local, internacional. He's been in office six months now since he was elected on those promises. How is he doing? Well, he got off to a flying start. He promised to vaccinate half the population in 100 days. And he achieved that promise. And that in turn is helping the economy start recovering and letting the government reopen schools. So by the end of September, Mr. Lasso had an approval rating of over 70%. He also has, I think, restored the country's standing with some outsiders, such as the United States and the multilateral development banks. But in the last two or three weeks, things have started to go wrong for him in various ways. How so? Well, his biggest and most immediate battle is with the National Assembly. He won the presidency in the election, but the left-wing opposition won a majority in the National Assembly. And the board of the Assembly sent his reform bill back to him. At the same time, there is some opposition to his reform plans in the streets, and the Confederation of Indigenous Peoples, which is traditionally quite powerful in Ecuador, 
is unhappy, or at least its leader is unhappy about increases in fuel prices as, as a result of the withdrawal of subsidies. But the Assembly is also investigating him over his appearance in the Pandora Papers, a trove of leaked documents that linked him to various offshore companies. He claims that he severed all contact with those companies in 2017. He insisted to me that he is the largest income taxpayer in Ecuador. Yo pago but even so, and for political reasons, the Assembly could even try to impeach him over the Pandora Papers. Michael, as you explained, Mr Lasso came in on an ambitious platform of economic reform. Could all of these issues derail those plans? I think it would be premature to say that he is doomed to failure. To his advantage, he has the fact that the Assembly is not popular. And I think most Ecuadorians still want to give Mr Lasso the benefit of the doubt. I think an awful lot depends on how quickly the economy grows and jobs are created. And I think if he does a reasonable job on that front, then he has a chance of pulling through. But it's going to be a rough few months for him and for Ecuador. Thanks very much for joining us, Michael. Thank you. Bonjour, bonjour. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, It might sound obvious, but the Latin alphabet doesn't sound the same in every Romance language. Depending on where your native tongue is from, you'll have an accent, even just pronouncing letters, leave alone words and sentences. So it's no surprise that when it comes to learning a foreign language, the accent often gets lost in translation. Every language is made up of a different set of sounds to start with, and those sounds can be difficult to learn if you don't have them in your language. Lane Green is the Economist's Johnson columnist, and he writes about language. But on top of that, there is very little good teaching on accents and all the other tricky stuff that you have to learn. And even by native speakers, they can tell you about the sounds of their language, but they often can't explain the more subtle rules that actually make for an accent. What are good examples of those subtle rules at work? Now, if you learn a language like French, you will usually be told that all French words are stressed on the final syllable. But the importance of this is often underplayed. For example, place names like Houston won't be said as Houston, so they say Houston. That rule on accenting on the final syllable is so strong that it really overrides lots of other concerns. It even means that words don't really have the same kind of secondary stress that they have in English. Like the word civilization has two stresses in English. The strongest stress is on the A vowel, but it has a secondary stress on the first syllable, civilization. In French, you really just say civilisation without a whole lot of secondary stress. That kind of stuff is a little more complicated, and so it often gets left out of teaching. And, and so that's the major difference, where the, where the stress tends to go? Well, that's one of them, but another one is how syllables are constructed. Basically, every language has a bunch of rules that every speaker knows, but almost nobody knows that they know, that linguists call phonotactics. And this is essentially what makes a permissible syllable. 
To give a really simple example, the reason you don't pronounce the P sound in psychology and pterodactyl, we don't say psychology and pterodactyl, is because English native words don't allow P plus an S or P plus a T at the beginning of a word. We can say it in the middle of a word, so the English rules allow you to say things like upside or uptown, which have the exact same cluster, PS or PT, but English doesn't allow them at the beginning. Uh, whereas they are allowed in Greek, which is why the P is there. It shows the Greek etymology of the word. So let me give you an example. I've got a question for you. How do you say the name of the creature that has a big bushy tail that runs up trees and gathers nuts? I would say squirrel. You would say squirrel and I would say squirrel. And that's because squirrel isn't too tricky for English speakers. But for example, it's a famously tricky word for a lot of foreign learners whose phonotactics don't allow the sounds in squirrel. Take a listen. Squirrel. 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 So this combines a few tricky things. One is the relatively unusual cluster at the beginning, which is the squa. It's a s sound plus a k sound plus a w sound. And then in the middle, there's actually a, a vowel. It's sort of written with a U-I-R, but it's really an er sound. And that vowel is very unusual. It's in bird and nerd and squirrel in English, but it doesn't exist in most languages. So many foreign speakers have a very hard time with it. And finally, we kind of get that er turning into an L at the end. And a lot of languages don't have that R-L combination allowed at the end of a syllable or at the end of a word. Okay, so all this is pretty mechanical, but... But there's also this sense that accents have a kind of lilt, I guess. And having a good accent is is matching that lilt. Yes, what we might call a lilt or a rhythm is usually how syllables are spaced out in a sentence when a speaker speaks. And by and large, there are a couple of different ways you can classify the world's languages in terms of how they time the approach of syllables. Um, two big distinctions are what we call syllable-timed languages and stress-timed languages. In syllable-timed languages, roughly every syllable has the same length. And so uh, Cantonese, Italian, Spanish, those are all examples of syllable-timed languages where you get a sort of rat-a-tat feeling if you listen to those languages in English. Um, take the sentence, I would like to go to Italy for a holiday. Now, in Italian and an Italian-speaking English, every one of those syllables would tend to have equal weight. So an Italian would say something more like, I would like to go to Italy for a holiday. Italy and holiday would clearly have three syllables with equal value, or as we'd say, Italy, holiday. And so the reason that so many people learning a foreign language have such bad accents is that all of those subtleties just aren't taught. These subtleties aren't taught very well. That's one issue. And then the other issue is that they get harder to just pick up from the atmosphere around you as we get older. So if you're exposed to a language's sounds earlier in life, you're more likely to be able to nail them later in life. Thank you, Lane. <laughs> Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.